Hello, I'm Martika Jenkins. And I am Lee Jenkins. Welcome to the Making Love and Money Work podcast. Where we discuss how to build and maintain healthy relationship habits. As well as how to build and maintain healthy financial habits, both individually and as a couple. After reaching the top of the corporate ladder, I decided to take on the challenge of becoming a beauty consultant, working my way up to become an elite executive senior sales director with Mary Kay, gaining over 29 years of sales, marketing, and leadership experience. I had a 25-year career in financial services, reaching the level of Vice President of Investments at Morgan Stanley and Raymond James & Associates before founding and pastoring Eagles Nest Church in Alpharetta, Georgia. But we can't forget the best part. That's right, babe. We've been happily married for over three decades, which means we know a little something about how to make love and money work. work. As you know, I am Lee, and my wife and I are excited about our new podcast, Making Love and Money Work. Martika and I will periodically jump in to guide you through today's podcast. You heard a little bit about us in the intro, but let's do a deeper dive. You'll hear about where I grew up shortly, but growing up, I got to tell you one beautiful name I never heard. Martika Maria Aguabella. I'm sorry, y'all, but I got to hear that name again. Martika Maria Aguabella. I'm sure you can tell Martika is Afro-Latina, but that said, let's get a little bit of her story. My father is from Cuba and he migrated here before Castro took over. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I had uh, two brothers and a sister on the second oldest. And uh, my mom was not a single mom until I was 14. Uh, And um, my parents got a divorce. But in my younger years, even, I I didn't see my dad very much because he was a very famous Latin musician. He traveled all over the world, didn't see him much. And then they got a divorce when I was 14. So she... um, was always running the household, very, very good with money, always saved for all our Christmas gifts, and she just was amazing with money, even though she wasn't making very much. I graduated from high school in 1980. Then I went on to college at the University of Southern California, paid my way through school, and um, worked full-time and went to school full-time. I was on scholarship at the University of Southern California, which was wonderful. Um, But then when I was a senior, uh, the federal uh, situation changed and I had to take out a student loan for $10,000. I propose that this week, the young people starting school and their parents and future employers accept some challenges. And they'll be tough challenges, the type you have to meet by yourself. Okay, let me explain. President Reagan reduced financial aid to college students back in the 1980s. Those most affected were students that were part of middle-income families. At that time, the average household income was around $24,000 a year. Reagan's cuts knocked out those with household incomes around $25,000 a year or more. But if your family's income was $23,000 or lower, you were eligible for financial aid. However, if it was $25,000 or higher, financial aid was gone instantly. And the scholarship Martika had included a federal grant called the Pell Grant. 
But that said, I'm sure some of you caught that $10,000 seemed like a lot to apply for in loans, especially at that time. Well, technically, I needed $5,000, but I took ten. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but don't judge. You got to understand that in the 1980s and 90s, there was no TikTok or YouTube where one could stream financial advice. And there were no podcasts like Making Love and Money Work either. Saw what I did there? At that time, when young people were transitioning from being teenagers to young adults, they were sold the idea of free money with no consequences, without being schooled on the fine print that came with it. And that was not just with student loans. While I was in college, I signed one piece of paper and got five credit cards. And so that started my debt journey. And um, that created more financial pressure on me. I was, I was not even thinking about Although I, I was taught not to have debt by my grandfather and all of that, but I just wasn't thinking about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can get five credit cards. Yay! <laughs> so, and I, and I commenced to charge them all up to the limit, you know, get what I didn't, what I couldn't have and that sort of thing. So that was, that was tough. The Oakland Raiders banner has proudly flown atop the sports world throughout an historic decade. And then I, as a senior, I decided to try out for the Los Angeles Raiders. The Raiders had moved to Los Angeles, and I thought it would be fun. A girlfriend of mine was doing it. I, tr I tried out for them and um, made the team. Wait, hold on. Cheerleader. Just to clarify, Raiders cheerleader. Which is actually one of the reasons why Lee didn't want to meet me. So I grew up the kind of opposite of Martika. I grew up on the other side of the United States in Atlanta, Georgia. The first 12 years of my life, uh, we lived in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment in what we commonly call now the hood or, or the projects is what we used to call them. And my mom and my dad did not have a great relationship. My father was an alcoholic, so money was always tight. Um, I know how it feels to get the electricity cut off. I know how it feels to not know where your next meal is coming from. I know how it feels to have to go to friends or relatives' houses to, to, to have a, a great meal. Now, some of that was because my father was an alcoholic, my mom was a school teacher, and he wasn't good with money, and it put a lot of pressure on my mom to make ends meet. So, um, making love and money work was not something that I saw modeled as a kid. Um, my parents had a very tumultuous marriage. Um, so the romantic love part, uh, there was not a lot for me to learn from. Uh, and then the money part, it was so scarce. So I grew up, I remember thinking, whenever I get money, um, I am going to make sure that I don't have to worry about basic necessities because I know how it feels to open the refrigerator and have absolutely nothing in the refrigerator. So that kind of shaped my life a little bit. Um, I've always been known as being a tightwad with money, being um, very money conscious. And some of that is because of how I grew up. One thing Lee hasn't mentioned yet is that throughout his formative school years, he became a standout athlete. How much of a standout athlete? Listen. 
My college experience was pretty incredible because I got recruited by a lot of colleges out of high school. I had about 30-plus scholarship offers, Ohio State, Michigan, Florida, Florida State, Miami, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Cal, uh, Arizona State. I can just go on and on. And I chose to go to the University of Tennessee on a full football scholarship. I was at the University of Tennessee from 1979 to 1983. And when you play big-time college football, there are some really good perks, okay? And one of those perks is um, when people like you, uh, they give you these really nice handshakes, okay? And the handshakes, you can feel a little paper in your palm, okay? And then you just kind of slip it in your pocket, and then you reach back in your pocket and take it out, and wow, I got $200 here. So being a big-time athlete in a major college football program was an unbelievable experience. So I was never hurting for money. I knew a lot of people, and I was pretty good in football. I started uh, my sophomore, junior, and senior year at defensive back, and I uh, knew that I was good enough to make the pros because all the guys who were a little bit older than me, they were playing in the NFL. So I pretty much knew that all I had to do was stay healthy, and I would be in the National Football League. But college was great, but um, money-wise, it was never a problem. So when I was in college, if my checking account got below $500, I would start to panic. This is pre-NCAA rules, Yeah, right? this is pre-NCAA. Well, all that money, I would do some work on the side. I would <laughs> right, do some things. Right. But my point is, that was like low to me, $500 in my checking account. Now, most college students, they're just trying to make it. But again, there were just so many opportunities to, uh, to make money and to do some things. So I kind of turned into a, a hustler. I also was the campus barber. So I was the one cutting all the football team's hair. I had a side hustle, and it was a very... Um, a prosperous and successful business. So between some of the perks and between me cutting hair, um, I never struggled financially in college. I never got in debt. In fact, I didn't get my first credit card until I was 27 years old. So everything I did all throughout college was all cash. And I had a lot of it. <laughs> so I got drafted by the NFL. NFL for me stood for not for long. To Lee's point, here's a fun or maybe not so fun fact. The average career length for NFL players is roughly 3.3 years. Remember when I said, as a senior, I decided to try out for the Los Angeles Raiders. I tried out for them and um, made the team. And then he said, so I got drafted by the NFL. I'm sure you're thinking that Lee and I must have met when I was a cheerleader for the Raiders and Lee, who was drafted by the NFL's New York Giants, played football, but not so. How did we actually meet? I was the road manager and business manager for a very famous gospel group in the mid-80s called the Winans. Question is, will I ever leave you? The answer is... So I was traveling with the Winans all around the world, and the very last trip that I went on with the Winans was to Los Angeles. 
I had already told them that I was going to be transitioning to come back to Atlanta to start my career in the investment business. So I knew it was my last trip. They knew it. And uh, so it was in Los Angeles. Well, my sister happened to be in Los Angeles, my younger sister, who's two years younger than me. And uh, when I told her I was coming to L.A., she said, oh, good. Uh, I got a friend I want to introduce you to. Martica Maria Aguabella. And I remember what she said. She's a pretty brown girl. You really like her, just like that. So I said, okay. And that's all I thought. I mean, I didn't think anything else. Of course, I get to L.A., and then that morning, uh, my sister and Martica come to pick me up at the hotel to go to church with them. So I get in the car, and there she is. But I was so tired because we had been up, we had been up all night, and and uh, I wasn't the most friendly person in the well, world. Well, don't forget that she also told you that I was a cheerleader for the Raiders, and you were not really that interested in meeting me. Okay, that's the truth. <laughs> she's right. Okay, so yeah, she said she's a cheerleader for the Raiders. She's this, she's that, and I just I had this stereotype of uh, of a person who's just L.A. You know how the you know we, we 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 would always say the women in L.A. Oh man, they're just after your money. You know they're just worldly. Oh, they're just so materialistic. So when she told me she was from L.A., went to USC, cheerleader for the Raiders, this and that, I was like, eh, I'm not that interested. So I met her, and um, the rest is history. Okay, this is a good start. But we've got some making love work stuff like my hand just all of a sudden goes right to her bottom, you know, and just <laughs> I flirt with her. And it's just so I would say meet him at his office with nothing on under my trench coat and you know, just different things to keep it spicy. <laughs> and then some making money work stuff like my definitions of success in my business is not what it is today because back then I couldn't do as much with them being as young as they were. But my mother instilled how to make big financial decisions about construction and, and loans and um, debt decisions and management decisions. Well, because I have that background. So don't go anywhere. Are you facing tough times in the midst of this difficult financial climate? Do you have questions about the nation's changing economy and other matters as it relates to money? Well, here is one bit of advice that can change your financial future. Pick up Lee Jenkins on Money, Real Solutions to Financial Challenges. This book will help you take a sober and responsible look at your finances and challenges you to be a faithful steward over what you have, no matter how great or small. Lee shows that by looking at life from a different perspective and applying new principles, there is still hope, so don't give up. Lee Jenkins on Money, Real Solutions to Financial Challenges can be found on Amazon.com, MakingLoveAndMoneyWork.com, and LeeJenkinsGroup.com. Change your financial future with Lee Jenkins on Money, Real Solutions to Financial Challenges. Order your copy today. Thanks for staying with us. We left off with Lee saying... So I met her and um, the rest is history. Okay, it's time for Martika to chime in. Well, I guess I got to go back a little bit further because uh, when I was on my last game with the Raiders, uh, it was a playoff game and we were losing. It was fourth quarter and God impressed upon me that it was my last game. He said, this is your last game. And I said, and why is this my last game? He said, because you're moving. 
I am. I, yes, okay. So I was very, I was a very faith-filled young woman. My desire was to please the Lord in, you know, in whatever I did. So um, he said, you're moving. I said, okay. So anyway, I didn't know where I was moving. A couple months later, a girlfriend of mine called and said, you know, the guys in Atlanta, they open the door for you and they're so gentlemanly. And I was like, oh, maybe Atlanta. So I had the opportunity to come to Atlanta with a couple of girlfriends and fell in love with the city and said, yes, this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, problem, I had no job here, no friends here, didn't know anybody and so forth. So uh, when I got back to LA, um, I said, okay, Lord, Atlanta's it, I know, give me the date. He gave me the date to move and everything. So um, I met Lee's sister through uh, one of the players on the team indirectly. I met her through one of the players on the team. So um, she, I told her she could move into my apartment and all of that. So, because I was moving, I said, I'm moving to Atlanta. She said, oh, my brother's from Atlanta. He's coming in town this weekend. I want you to meet him, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever, you know, no big deal. So when I get in the, when he got in the car, he was like, hey, I'm like, hey. And we just started, we went to church. There was no like fireworks and oh my gosh, he's the one, none of that. And I was on a man fast at that time. So I was not engaging in any activity with any guys. I wasn't giving my number out. I wasn't talking to anybody on the phone. I had been on a man fast for nine months. Cause I told God I was sick of just all of the garbage and I just wanted the next person that I dated to actually be my husband. So I just cut it all off. So that's why I was not in that frame of mind where I was like, oh, he's cute. Although I thought he was cute, but that was not where I was mentally. So um, anyway, we got to know each other over the next couple days. We ended up spending a lot of time together because as God would have it, I got let go the the Friday before I met him. So I had all this time on my hands the next week. (laughs) So anyway... um, uh, we got to know each other. I told him I was moving to Atlanta. He asked me a series of questions about where and who and why. And I'm like, I don't have a job. I don't know anybody. I'm just going to stay at the Hotel Six until you know, until I find a job or whatever. And then he um, he said, Well, I'll help you find a roommate. So and he did. He helped me find a roommate before I got here, and uh, drove across country and in my little Datsun B210 with no air conditioning in July. <laughs> It was 100, I got here, it was 107. Oh, yeah. And then we um, we were really good, just friends. You know, we were, you know, he was looking for work and I was too. And um, he would borrow my car. I would come pick him up and he'd drive me to work and I, he'd borrow my car to go to work or whatever. We, we were just, we had the one car and I was, he was living with his mother and he didn't have a car, so I said, you can use mine when I'm at work or whatever, working my temporary jobs here. And then we just fell in love over time. I mean, I was a little more reluctant than he was because I had been hurt before. So I was like, mm, I take my time, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got the body. He had a yes. neck that was the size of my thigh. I mean, he right. was like <laughs> ripped, right, you know. Right, right. <laughs> um, and But I was still very tentative about you know, getting into a serious relationship. But then by by October, he told me that, he said, I love you and, you know, I'm going to marry you. But if you decide not to marry me, you're just going to be out of the will of God. 
Okay, so maybe I turned up the heat a bit. And don't forget, Lee was the big-time football athlete turned financial wizard. So what was it about Martica Maria Aguabella for Lee? Actually, I loved the fact that I was not a big deal to her. I love that. So, um, and actually, I was not on a so-called fast from dating and all that, but I had not been in a serious relationship in a long time. And I believe God had given me peace to say, the next woman that I even get her phone number. So, I mean, I want it to be my wife. And what I mean by that is I don't even want to spend a lot of time talking on the phone and going out and going to movies unless this relationship has enormous potential. So I was very reserved like Martika was. But after three days of knowing her, I said, uh-oh, I might have something here. And I'm telling you, just being around her after a couple of days, it did something to my heart. But she didn't know that because I wasn't about to say anything. But I felt like after three days that there was a very good chance that I just found my wife. Okay, Martika's turn. What was it about me that made me the guy for her? Really all character things, you know, that he loved God, that he was a faithful person, a loyal person, um, that he had integrity, had a, a very kind heart. And so I made a list of of characteristics that I wanted in a husband, and I made that right as I was going into my man fast. So I knew that when I met him, I would know him because of what God gave me on that list. And so that was what attracted me to him. Martika and I have been married for over 30 years. As of this podcast, 33 years to be exact. That said, we have some insights on how to make love work. I'll let Martika start. Uh, For us, I believe that we built a very strong foundation of friendship, and we enjoy one another's company. We made sure that during our relationship, as our kids were getting, you know, as our kids from the time they were very young to the time they left, we kept our relationship first in the house. Um, We had a very... uh, we had lots of boundaries in our home in terms of what our kids could and could it, you know, do in terms of infringing upon our relationship. So I know that sounds, that probably sounds strict to some people, but we wanted to make sure that when our kids went to college that we didn't lose each other, that we didn't, that we would still know each other uh, once they left. And that's exactly what happened. When they left, although we missed them, you know, being around and being with us, our relationship did not take a hit because we had already been, we have always been cultivating it all those years. Always having our date nights, always going, having separate vacations where they didn't come with us. We went on the weekends here or there and, and they didn't come. It was just for us to reconnect and to, you know, and to um, build our relationship. And so just by doing that, it helped us to keep our friendship getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I think that and the fact that we're very honest with each other, we're very vulnerable in front of each other, we're, we don't have any secrets. It's just we, um, we just have decided from the very beginning that we were going to intentionally make sure that our relationship was growing every year. 
Well, 33 years is a long time, but it doesn't seem like it's been 33 years. I mean, so I would say, um, I'm going to speak from my perspective, the passion I have for my wife, um, how I treated her during the dating and even the beginning of our marriage. It is no different than how I treat her today. In fact, I think I'm more passionate now. In other words, I've never taken her love or her for granted. Whatever I did to get her, I've continued to do it to keep her. So we just valued our relationship and each other. We never took each other for granted. I ask her out to dates. I go out to dinner. We do walks. We talk together. We text each other. We say sexy stuff to each other. We flirt with each other. She walks by me and my hand just all of a sudden goes right to her bottom, you know, and just, I flirt with her. And it's just, so I would say that obviously, I mean, the the Lord has been good to us. He's bless me tremendously, but you have to cultivate that thing, okay? Um, Nothing grows naturally. The only thing that grows naturally in life are weeds, okay? You don't have to do anything for weeds to grow, but you do have to do something for green grass to grow. You have to fertilize it. It has to get watered, and it's the same with marriage. If you don't fertilize it and take care of it, Um, it's going to die and all you're going to see are weeds. But any marriage you see that's green and flourishing, which by the grace of God our marriage is, is because there's been a lot of work, a lot of fertilization, and um, a lot of watering. And so that's been the secret, not to take each other for granted and keep working on it. Making love and money work. And it takes some work, but it's worth it. Don't get it twisted. It's not always easy making love and money work. That means there are tough times too. When and how do we get through those tough times? Listen. When I was in the middle of my business career and really prospering and making a lot of money, and then I was very involved in the church I was at serving as a major leader, and then I was involved socially, you know, just doing all kind of stuff in the community and networking. And then we had three kids at home, little kids, my wife. I don't believe I spent the time with her like I should have. And, um, you know, I, I felt there were some times where there was some distance. I felt a little bit distant from her, but it was because of the lack of communication and the lack of cultivating the relationship. So that's the only time I think I have struggled is because my focus was so deep and intense on some other things that I didn't take care of home like I should have. So I had to learn how to find that balance, how to still be passionate and focused on business and making money and networking and all that stuff, but still be just as focused on being a good husband and a good father. So that was the only time I felt challenged is uh, I would say was probably in my mid-30s after we had been married maybe eight years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he was running really hard. He had to work a lot of hours. And I knew that, so I was not 
you know, I was letting him do what he does. You know, that's what he has to do to build his business. Um, but he always knew when it was time to take me out because he knew when I got an attitude, it was time to take me on a date. <laughs> right, right. Oh man, when she started getting short with me, man, and looking at me, and I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not on my game. I got to step it up. So what we ended up doing was finding some time to meet during the day. You know, I'd go have lunch with him. I'd um, um, meet him at his office with nothing on under my trench coat and, you know, just different things to keep it spicy. <laughs> Did you catch that? She said she had a trench coat on with nothing under it. We got some good making love work stuff. Let's move to making money work stuff. I uh, got into the investment business. So I started with a really big firm called Morgan Stanley. At least that's what they're called now. Back in the day, it was Dean Witter. And I was a stockbroker. That's what they called us back then. So I was working at a large investment firm, New York-based investment firm, um, a Wall Street firm, Morgan Stanley at the time. And I was a successful stockbroker, not successful when I first started, but eventually became successful. And Martika, as she'll tell you, she was working in the financial industry also. Yes, when I uh, got my first corporate job in Atlanta, I was a retirement planning specialist for the largest pension company in the world. I had to travel up to 60% of the week. And that was great until I started having children. So um, once our daughter was born, then our son was born, and I told my husband, I cannot keep up this pace. It's a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that DFAX doesn't take the kids because my flight was canceled and I'm calling Lee going, go pick them up, my flight was canceled, I'm not gonna get in in time, you know. It was just a very harried life. And I told him that I wanted to try something else. Um, my mother had talked to me about trying um, to become a beauty consultant with Mary Kay back when I was 21. And I was like, absolutely not. I'll never do that. <laughs> so, but that was the first thing I thought about when I wanted to work from home. So I called her up and I said, hey, mom, just sign me up. I'm going to try this thing. So ended up uh, quitting my full-time job a year later and starting Mary Kay full-time, um, which full-time Mary Kay is like 25 hours a week. So, um, but I um, ended up working full-time Mary Kay and yeah, because I had that kind of flexibility that I needed to raise the kids and do my business, still making an executive income and raise the kids at the same time, it worked well for me. And um, a lot of the principles that I learned in the business, I, I took home with me, like things like time management, emotional management, leadership, just those things that were core values in our business, I was able to incorporate in my personal life too. Um, and Lee and I had a, our, our, we felt like our marriage was teamwork. It was not one-sided. It was, if I couldn't do this, he did it. If I could, if, if he couldn't do something, I did it. So it was always, we were always working in tandem and still do work in tandem together so that we're not, um, one person doesn't feel like they're carrying basically the weight of everything. And so because of that, it also, you know, helped our relationship because we always were like, hey, if, if, if you can't do it, I'll do it. No problem. You know, it was never an issue. You know, Lee is really great about he'll come home. If he sees dishes in the sink, he goes in and starts cleaning. He just immediately starts cleaning. It's not a question. I don't have to say, babe, could you help me with the dishes? Can't you see? I need some help. It was never that for me. So for him, he was always just jump in and help me. And so I think if more husbands would do those types of things, then they would have more rewards in the evenings. 
more rewards in the evening. I promise you, if you stay with this podcast week after week, it's going to bless you. Here's another insight. I love how Martika unpacks the difference between emotional management and time management. Listen. Yeah, time management is something that people always, they know about. That's something you talk about all the time. But emotional management is something that is usually not really discussed. And emotional management is very, very important in a relationship. It is um, how you respond to your, in my case, my husband. How do I respond to him when he asks me something that may be be offensive or whatever? Or um, it's... It's, am I going to brood about something for a long period of time? And I was taught in Mary Kay that I had 10 minutes to have a pity party. So I don't have pity parties for long periods of time. So that bled over into my relationship. It's like, if he offended me, we would just talk about it and deal with it. It wasn't something that we just, that I just brooded about and I just carried an offense and all of that. No, we dealt with it and it was over. And so though it's a really important, it's probably one of the most important things for my business because in business, you're going to get rejected or you're going to get, well, you're not getting rejected. The business is. Whoa, I know you missed that. Let me rewind that. You're not getting rejected, the business is. Yep, that's a way of thinking that we're going to explore in later episodes. Okay, let's keep going. And so because of that, you have to be able to say, this is just business, it's not personal. Not personal, it's just business, (laughs) you know. You gotta be able to move on, right. And so uh, having that really quick recovery is important. Though my husband is now the pastor of Eagles Nest Church here in Alpharetta, Georgia, he had a successful 25-year career in financial services, reaching the level of vice president of investments at two major Wall Street firms, Morgan Stanley and Raymond James & Associates. I say that to say our beliefs inform our business decisions. Lee explains this so well here. Listen. Well, a lot of people look at their faith and their finances or their business as two separate things. I do my faith over here and I do my business over here. But my faith and my business perspectives are really the same. They are one in the same. I love this verse. I believe it is in Matthew chapter 621. It says, where your treasure is, there will your heart to be also. So there's a strong correlation between how we handle business and money and what's going on in our hearts. So I believe that my faith informs my business decisions. So I have to operate with integrity. I can't cut corners from a business standpoint. I have to treat people right. I have to treat them fairly. In fact, I am probably a little bit over generous when it comes to how I treat people in business because I never want it to be said that I took advantage of someone. But that doesn't mean I'm not shrewd. That doesn't mean I'm not trying to get the best deal. I just want it to be a win-win. That makes me feel good when I win, and I do want to win, okay? But I want the other person to feel good like they won as well. So I think the biggest thing is the perspective. Win-win versus win-lose. We cannot go without establishing our personal definitions of success. Martika will start, and I'll pick up from there. Well, for me, success 
is different at different stages in your life. You know, like depending on what you're working on, you know, when I was when I had smaller kids, my definition of success in my business is not what it is today because back then I couldn't do as much with them being as young as they were. But my mother instilled a lot of vision in me about having a successful life. Uh, each week we went to the beach every single Sunday and on our way to the beach, of course being in California, we drove through Beverly Hills and Bel Air and we were we were encouraged to choose a home that we wanted, the one that we we're going to live in later. Um, and that vision of what my life was going to be was deeply instilled in me because it happened every week that I was a young girl. So um, when I met Lee, although he hadn't be become a stockbroker yet, he just had a dream of becoming a stockbroker and he was on his way, you know, taking the test and all that good stuff but one of the things that let me know that he was someone that I could be with for the rest of my life was that he's his vision for his life was congruent with my vision that my mother gave me of what my life was going to be like and so I knew that we would be able to build a great life together uh, because I knew what I deserved of what I deserved to have and um, and his vision for his life was equal to that well, I have a definition of what I think success is. I like to say that success is not what you do compared to someone else. In other words, most people think success is where they are compared to someone else. If you make more money than other people, then you're successful. If your marriage is so-called better than somebody else's, then you're successful. If you have a bigger house, then you're successful. But that's comparing it to someone else. Even in sports, which I have a sports background, if you beat the other guy, you're successful. Well, in life, success is not what you do compared to someone else. Success is what you do compared to what you are capable of doing. In other words, you are successful when you are reaching your God-given potential. You are successful when you are getting out of you everything that God put in you. Now, that may put you in first place, but it may also put you in last place. Quick story, I ran track in college. I was running track when some of the best sprinters in the world were in college, and I competed against them, like Carl Lewis and people like that. So one particular track meet, I made it to the finals in the 200-meter dash, okay? And I got in my blocks, and I couldn't believe, man, a couple of lanes for me were some world-renowned track athletes. The gun went off, and I'm running with these world-class athletes. We come around the curve, everything is looking good, and then they shifted into a gear that I did not have. And they left me in the dirt, is what we would say. I crossed the finish line in sixth place, which was dead last. But I ran the fastest time I had ever run in my life. So, was I successful? Or was I unsuccessful? I think that's successful because I ran the fastest race that I had ever run in the 200 meters. But compared to Carl Lewis and all these other guys, I was unsuccessful. Life to me is about getting out of you everything that's in you and not comparing yourself to other people, but comparing yourself to what you are capable of doing. 
I really enjoyed this, babe. I know, me too. If this is your first time listening, trust me, you gotta check out our next episode. And go back and catch the ones you missed because they are all so good. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Marietta, Georgia. Trayvon also created and curated the music. The host and executive producers of this Making Love and Money Work podcast are Martika and Lee Jenkins. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with everyone you know. Also, rate and review it on this platform. For more information, go to makingloveandmoneywork.com. Again, that's makingloveandmoneywork.com. You can also visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Till next time, remember to make love and money work for you. you.